Hi, I'm Jane Leader, and you're listening to Older Women and Friends. You know, we older women have a lot to say about love, grief, loss, and resilience. We're more comfortable speaking our truth. We've been good scouts and earned our badges, and now it's time to change the perception that the gig is just about up, when in truth, the second wave of the gig has just begun. We are the matriarchs, the women at the top of the food chain, and we've been given the precious gift of passing along the wisdom that we fought so hard for. So let's build a community of older women, women who are strong, self-fulfilled, and a hell of a lot of fun. Ashton Applewhite is recognized as the mover and shaker in the battle against ageism, but her journey has not been linear or easy. Like so many of us, the prospect of growing old made her feel anxious and often filled her with dread. But she forged ahead, she spent some 12 years, and then she wrote This Chair Rocks, a Manifesto Against Ageism a book that the Washington Post named as one of the 100 best books to read at every age. You know, but it's one thing to read praise on a book cover, and it's another to listen to the author tell her own story. So I am really, really psyched to welcome Ashton Applewhite, the author of This Chair Rocks, A Manifesto Against Ageism. Hello! Hello, Jane. Good to meet you. Pleasure nice to, be here. to meet you, too. Well, can you talk a little bit about the kind of kid you were growing up? <laughs> well, that makes me think of my grandmother, who was not a writer, but said if she was going to write a memoir, she would call it As Memory Swerves. I could have sworn that my older brother, who left home at 14, never had another word to say to my father, and then just uncovered some chatty correspondence they had when he was in his 40s. So I don't trust anything about my memories. <laughs> and I will say my memory has always been terrible. But I was certainly a nerdy, very, very bookish kid. And I still am. <laughs> How do you think your bookishness or your nerdiness affected you or primed you to be so curious about aging? You know, I think curiosity is a trait that I think most kids are curious because they need to know what's dangerous and what's hot and, you know, what's literally hot, too hot to touch or whatever. And I suppose conventional education bashes it out of some of them. But I think if you are a curious younger person, you tend to be a curious older person. And I very much am. I am also a generalist. And I could never figure out what to be when I grew up or what to major in in college, not in that order. Um, I've never heard of a place I wouldn't want to travel to or a food with a few exceptions that I wouldn't try and sample. So I think that's my nature. I will say that if you had told me 15 years ago that I would become fascinated by aging, I would have said, ew, why do I want to think about something sad and depressing that old people do? And what I learned was, of course, that we are aging from the minute we're born, right? To live is to age. To age is to live. And that 
you know, it's, it's how we move through life and that it is relevant to every domain of human endeavor, this education, the workforce, health, every domain of, of, of study, of, you know, economics, public health, biology, philosophy, you name it. And the more you know, the more interesting it is. And because most people are terrified to even think about it, there's all these aha moments that are, or what my son's girlfriend called, no shit, oh shit <laughs> moments, right? Like, oh, really? Let me think, oh, wow. You know, where you realize that it is all around us and that we tend to not see it. Did that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. But I think it would be helpful if you could just give us a quick definition of ageism. Absolutely. The dictionary definition is stereotyping and prejudice on the basis of age. We are being ageist anytime we make an assumption about someone or a group of people based on how old we think they are, uh, including you're too young. It's important to realize that it cuts both ways because we live in such a youth-obsessed society. Older people absolutely bear the brunt of it, but it really does cast a shadow across our entire lives. And I like the, the World Health Organization launched a global campaign to combat ageism almost two years ago. And I want to point out it's not the World Old People Organization. It's the World Health Organization. Happy to talk about how ageist attitudes affect our health. And they have a really nice framing. They say they are aiming to change the way we think, feel, and act about age and aging because there's the idea of beliefs and of prejudices and of discrimination, which is how these uh, ideas are embodied in policies and structures around us. So that leads me perfectly to my next question, and that is what are some of the beliefs about, as you call, olders? in uh, our society today, some of those myths, those stereotypes. Yeah. Of course, a stereotype is by definition the notion that all people who belong to a given group are the same. And of course, all stereotypes are false and misleading, but especially when it comes to age, because the nerdy way to put this, the way um, scientists put it, is the defining characteristic of late life is heterogeneity. The longer we live, the more different from each other we become. Every newborn is unique, of course, but, you know, seven-year-olds have way more in common developmentally, physically, cognitively than 27-year-olds who are way more alike than 47-year-olds and so on. So the older the person, the less the number their age reveals about them. So I would say the mother of all stereotypes is that at some point we, you know, turn into the elderly or the aged and the the is the problem there, right? This assumption that we, uh, or, you know, those, those infuriating marketing check checklists that, you know, divide um, the population to, you know, 18 to 23 and 23 to set 27 and so on, and then end at 60 or 65 or even 40 right? As though everyone over that point is capable, interested in the same things, does the same stuff when nothing literally could be further from the truth. The thing that drives me absolutely nuts is if you're online and you're filling out your age and they have this scrolling column and to scroll all the way down, in my case, to 1945 seems like it takes 
a year. And uh, the further down I go, the more frustrated I get. It's like, could you guys make this a little easier, please? But that's that's neither here nor there. I'm just grateful it goes all the way down to 1952. <laughs> I mean, think how much worse it would be if it didn't even include us. Now, I know some of these stereotypes are that older people are more unhappy than younger people. Right. Or have higher levels of depression. In fact, older people enjoy better mental health than young or middle-aged people. There are always exceptions, of course, but that's a huge one. And, you know, it's part of the way aging itself affects the healthy brain. It's those, those are the psychological underpinnings of the U-curve of happiness, which shows that people are happiest in childhood and then in very late life, partly because as we get older, and when I started out thinking about this, I thought, well, everything about growing old is obviously going to be awful. And one of the things that must make it more awful is that death is closer. And I envision like the grim reaper, this you know shadow hanging over my sad iron bedstead. And in fact, that's not the way it works for the vast majority of older people. The awareness that time is short helps us spend our time more wisely, be more careful about who we spend it with, and be present in the moment, which we know is what, and kids do it because they don't know how to live any other way. So um, that's just one finding that, you know, old people are sad and depressed. I like to point out that not only is it not the case, that's even more remarkable given that we inhabit a culture that persistently silences and denigrates us. I know there are other stereotypes out there, like uh, the vast majority of people 65 and older live in nursing homes. It's down to uh, 2.5% in the United States. I think it's 3% in Canada. Yeah, or that, you know, we're all going to, if we can't remember, you know, where we put the car keys, where Alzheimer's is right around the corner. And that's not not remotely true. Part of, I mean, most of the the tiny percentage of older Americans who live in nursing homes do have severe cognitive impairment and require serious nursing care. And we're and we're talking about nursing homes, not all senior living, right? But that fear is bad for us. As the saying goes, if you can't remember what your car keys are for, that is indeed a sign that something might be wrong. But but no one knows. For Sometimes I think of myself as being in the both sides of the story business. For example, dementia rates are declining. No, we never talk about that. Why? Because fear sells, you know, and because a scary and extreme headline, and I'm guilty of this too, I'm more likely to click on that than the true story, which is most of us will muddle along in the middle just fine. You know, but that is... <laughs> That is the true story, right? And the apprehension that when we are forgetful, it could be the sign of something terrible happening itself is bad for us. I'd, I'd love to quote a study to verify that, can I? Because it's one of my favorite. Absolutely. Mic drop propositions. The woman who has done most of the uh, research that addresses how our attitudes towards aging affect how long and how well we will live is named Becca Levy. And she has a study that shows that people, she, uh, she, she describes them people with more positive attitude towards aging. I like to see people with more accurate 
attitudes towards ah. aging. It's not, we need, I am no Pollyanna. There are lots of things to worry about when it comes to getting older, you know, running out of money, getting sick, ending up alone. Those fears are legitimate and real. But our fears are way out of proportion to the reality, right? As with Alzheimer's. And so I, so I would say people with more accurate attitudes towards aging are less likely to develop Alzheimer's, even if they have the gene that predisposes them to the disease. That's one reason the World Health Organization is prioritizing anti-ageism campaigning. I get that because I have a mother, had a mother who had dementia. So anytime there is a, you know, complete lapse of memory, which does occur more and more often, (laughs) I then go into the mode of, uh uh-oh, I'm, you know, it's just around the corner. So reading and hearing about that kind of statistic is very heartwarming to me and I'm sure to a lot of of other people. There's something you wrote that I keep quoting now all the time. And I think it goes something like, there are two universal truths, things (laughs) that are going to happen to all of us. One is that we're going to lose someone or many people we love. And the other is that at least one part of our body is going to go a little wacky on us. And that just cracked me up. Um, Well, I frame that as there are only two universal bad things about getting older because we are so worried about this, you know, avalanche of awfulness and none of all of those bad things happen to all of us, obviously. And those are the only two that happen to all of us. Right. And I could suffer a physical loss that wouldn't bother someone else and someone else, you know, I could, if I were not able to drive at night anymore, I happen to live in New York and don't own a car right? Whereas to someone else, that particular vision loss would be a terrible catastrophe. I'm not athletic, right? So, but for an athlete who loses, you know, some physical capacity that's really integral to their identity and their sense of themselves, that's a more terrible loss, you know? And and I have things, you know, that would be harder for me to give up than other people. So it's always deeply, deeply individual. We age well, not by pretending this is never going to happen. And we only have limited control over what does happen. We age well by adapting. You know, you talked about ageism, and I think you said it is ugliest for older women. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because this is, after all, called older women and friends. Yeah, yeah. It it makes me think of a quote by a A wonderful writer named Cynthia Rich, who wrote with her uh, then partner, they have both since died, um, the first book called about that addresses the intersection of ageism and sexism in the 70s. And it's called Look Me in the Eye, Old Woman. And Cynthia Rich says the harshest form of misogyny is reserved for older women. And I think it is because of our power. You know, think about medieval Europe, the way witches were burned at the stake. You know, the the power of older women, which is, of course, harshly curtailed by poverty, by capitalism, by patriarchy, by misogyny. I'm not saying we all get to go work our witchery, but I think people react most harshly to things they fear. But women do. Aging is gendered. Women are punished far more harshly by appearing to look visibly older Uh, Our worth in patriarchy is very much tethered to our reproductive uh, capacity, 
right? Very little um, health care, health research is done on women after menopause because we're no longer reproductively useful. Uh, Women, as we know, earn far less than men. We stop being promoted to managerial positions in the U.S. at age 34, one study shows. I mean, in the workforce, women are never the right age. First, we're too cute and sexy to be taken seriously. Then we hit our 30s and we're too fertile, right? We might have children, which, as we all know, would reduce our ability to think or work. And then, boom, you're not sexy or fertile anymore. And that's it. And yet, the reality is, I think we, what is it, women live something like two-thirds of their lives post-menopause? I'm not sure I have that right. It's either a third or two-thirds. It's a long time. It's a long time. I think we have two very helpful lessons. One, the women's movement, and also the body acceptance movement. The Sometimes I think that the toughest ask, and which it shouldn't be, of course, is to get people, women in particular, to look more generously at each other and at ourselves, right? It is staggering how much conversation among women has to do with how we look. I have resolved never to discuss hair. And it's tempting because any post about hair gets 10,000 likes and dislikes and you know 50 women showing pictures of their beautiful gray hair and more power to them right? There are so many voices out there telling us women what we should look like and should say and shouldn't say and so on. I don't want to be one of them, but look at how far the body acceptance movement has come in pushing the narrative to include the idea that beauty is not restricted to the thin, the young, the white, the blonde, right? And that we need to accept all body types. And what we need to do between our ears and then take that awareness out into the world is that age two is a category that we need to push back against as signifying our value in the culture as one that depreciates, you know, and and, I mean, and the reason I do the work I do is because we need a mass movement like the women's movement And I love to bring up consciousness raising in this context because what consciousness raising did was bring women together to share stories. And what that meant was they they were able to see, oh, gee, it's not my fault or my bad or unique to me that I'm getting harassed or not getting promoted or have no power in my marriage. These are widely shared problems that we can come together and do something about. And women have a huge advantage here because we talk to each other, right? That is a real advantage that women have as we age. So look at your examine, your own attitudes towards age and aging. And there's so many directions all of this can go in, you know, because most bias is unconscious, because we can't challenge bias unless we're aware of it. And so we need to look for evidence that we are ageist instead of evidence that we're not. I want to mention a site called the Old School Clearinghouse, oldschool.info which I started with two colleagues with the idea inspired by the women's movement. I thought, you know, the anti-ageism movement is new. Wouldn't it be cool if we had a central repository for the best books, the best talks, the best infographics, podcasts that talk about ageism? So it's all there. Everything is free except the books, oldschool.info. And we also make our own workshops and guides. And we have on there free, downloadable, take them, change them, share them, rewrite them, do whatever you want with them, 
to addressing internalized bias, who me ageist, then one about the intersection of ageism and sexism, called ageist sexist who me, also ageist racist who me, download them. Look at the questions at the end. If you Starting a consciousness raising group is a big ask, right? But bring some women together and talk about the stuff because we don't talk about it enough, right? And make sure all ages are in the room. I wanted to ask you a little bit about self-care as it's relating to women because it's become such a big business. Uh, you need this cream. You should have this kind of massage. Uh, take a day and go to the spa and to me, it seems as if it's all very external, that it may make you feel better for an hour, two hours the next day, but that, and according to Nancy Collier, who has just written a book, uh, the self-care needs to come from within out, not from out within. Any thoughts on that? Well, I certainly agree with her. And I want to point, I think I'm right about the fact that the whole notion of caring for yourself, especially if you are engaged in difficult work, came from, at very radical origins, among women of color doing really difficult work. Audre Lorde writes about this, the fantastic poet and activist who, who sadly died very young, who you just never go wrong quoting or reading Audre Lorde. And it's a way to look after ourselves so that we find joy in the struggle and so that we don't wear ourselves out. This has been, like everything else in our culture, commodified and turned into things that people can sell and make money off. No one makes money off satisfaction. A more sort of obvious example is the beauty industry, you know, where if you just buy this cream or have this massage, everything's going to be nifty. And in fact... You know, your skin does a really good job of caring for itself. And the beauty industry, I follow a fantastic blogger on the skin um, industry named Jessica DeFino. And a lot of these products, you know, strip away all the things from your skin, and then you spend a lot of money replacing it bit by bit. I'm, I'm oversimplifying, of course. But we know that you know, from Buddhism, and I don't mean to pretend any deep knowledge of Buddhist thought, but from religious tradition, that contentment comes from within, not from acquiring external stuff, and certainly not by comparing us ourselves to other people. I'll quote my grandmother for the second time, and that's a first for me, and it was not unique to her, but she, one of her uh, dicta was, comparisons are odious. Yeah, I need to think about that one a little bit myself. It's hard. (laughs) It's very hard. So, What might an age-friendly world look like? You know, that's that's such a big question because everyone ages. So if the world were a place in which your age was not neither held against you nor used to elevate you, I want an age-neutral world. I want a world in which your age is right there for everyone to know, but no one thinks more or less of you or places a higher or lower value on you because of that number, whether you're three, you know, or 93. That because everybody ages, that would also be a world where your skin color is not used to discriminate against you, where your body size is not held against you. It is a world of of equity rather than a world configured by, frankly, largely wealthy white men to further the interests of wealthy white men men 
at the expense of everyone else who is more and more different from that center of power in terms of class, in terms of education. Are you fat? Do you have an accent? Do you have an education? Do you come from here? Do you have a social network of people with privilege? And on and on and on. So a world without ageism would be a world without any discrimination against people on the basis of things we cannot change about ourselves. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? My next question is, if each one of us could do just one thing, because we're not going to be able to go out there and change the world, we know that. But if each one of us, and, and maybe we can talk about women, I mean, a very surfacey example is your suggestion that when someone says, wow, you don't look your age, and you say, you don't either. Well, I tried that yesterday at uh, Nordstrom Rack, and I was, for whatever reason, they needed to ask for my age. And when I mentioned it, she went, oh, my God, you don't look your age. And I looked at her and I said, you don't either. Uh, She was bewildered. She didn't know how to respond. And then her initial response was she was going to start to do the yes buts. And I know yes buts because I have been a yes but woman and I am working really hard to change that. So this is going to be my one small practical contribution. Hopefully doing this podcast will be another. But I wondered, you know, for women who are listening now, what are maybe some of the basic things that each one of us could do? Right. Well, I want to commend you on speaking up. Because it takes courage. We can't, there is no culture change without discomfort. So you were able to say that to her instead of snapping at her. You know, at least she didn't call you young lady. It's hard to be neutral, you know, in those, in those contexts. But the fact that she was bewildered is a completely perfect and appropriate response. Because you're asking her to challenge why something she intended as a compliment feel like a compliment. And it is in those moments, I mean, I think and say ages things all the time, but that's when we go, you know, the gear is crying and we go, gee, maybe there's a different and better way to think about this. So I would go back to to the basics of, of learning more about aging and considering your own attitudes towards age and aging. There, I can think of two suggestions. One is to think about how you use the words old and young. And literally, when you use them, think about whether you use them in a neutral way. They're perfectly good words. I'm old. It's okay to wish. You know, my friends are so gun-shy. They're like, happy birthday. And then the blood drains out of their faces. You know, did I screw up? Age is real. We should be able to reference it, right? It's like whether we like, you know, chocolate ice cream or whether we're heterosexual. It's intrinsic to our identity, right? We get into trouble when we attribute value to it, positive or negative, So when older people say, I feel young, what they mean is, I don't feel, I feel sexy, I feel active, I feel with it, right? I don't feel old, that means I don't feel invisible, I don't feel useless. We can feel all those things, positive and negative, at any age. When I was 13, I felt so ugly, you know, and so full of despair about everything, more, by far more than I ever have since, right? So watch out for attributing a value to old or young because we can feel all those things at any time. 
Another little habit to try and break, no judgment, we all do these things, is, you know, one of the reasons the U.S. in particular is so ageist is because it's such an age-segregated society, right? When next time you get to a party or a, you know, a gathering of any sort, a meeting, a whatever, don't sit next to someone your age. Don't make a beeline for people your own. We all tend to do it because it's comfortable, just the way we tend to, you know, queer people head for queer people, you know, brown people head for brown people. It's habit, right? I mean, it, it is biased, but it's what we're, and it's uncomfortable. And one more, it's really hard to come up with a snappy comeback to an ageist comment. You did great. But a really good all-purpose one, because you can never think of the perfect thing to say until you're lying in bed pissed off that night, is in a neutral tone, what do you mean by that? And let that awkward silence sit there, that bewilderment that you got out of the sales clerk. Because that's when the person has to think, geez, what did I mean by that? And how do I feel about how what I meant by that, right? I love that. I'm, I'm anxious to get out there right now and try it. I wanted you to talk quickly about your blog and where people can find it, what your attempt was when you started writing it, lo, these many years ago. Oh, God. I thought I, I wrote one serious book, which I will tell your readers about since they're all women, which is called Cutting Loose, Why Women Who End Their Marriages do so well. But I do blog and I am very active on social media because, you know, I'm an evangelist. So I'm very, very easy to find. My main uh, website is thischairrocks.com. There, if you look there, there's, it says blog. And I have been thinking out loud on that main blog for 15 years and it's searchable by topic. So search, you know, under any topic, women, you know, I wrote a long post about how the women's movement needs to do better than we did in the 70s. You know, that movement was run by and for the interests of white women who were not thinking about whether the effects of their activism actually lifted the boats of working class women and women of color. And it didn't, right? So we need to do better with the movement against ageism. And believe me, I include in myself in that. I'm not preaching. I think all the time about whether I'm even getting close to that lofty goal. It's going to take all of us. So there's that. Um, I also have a blog called um, Yo, Is This Ageist? Modeled on an existing blog called Yo, Is This Racist? Where people ask me questions and I try hard to answer them in ways that are witty and informative, which is not easy, believe it or not. And I'm at this chair rocks on Twitter and on Instagram. And you can find me on LinkedIn. And I have a this chair rocks Facebook page. So if you can't find me, you're not trying very hard. And um, because I'm the only person in the world with this name. And also, again, you can find all these things, all the resources I've mentioned, Becca Levy's wonderful book, which is called Breaking the Age Code, in the Old School Anti-Ageism Clearinghouse at oldschool.info. Perfect. I'm sure everybody will be making a beeline to their computers as soon as we are done talking. And she has one more thing she wants to say. Another thing that we are doing with old school is, you know, we need to find ways to connect as age advocates, right? And as people learning to speak and think differently about age advocacy. So sign up for my newsletter if you want. I don't do it very often, but the old school newsletter, it's easy to subscribe to, to cancel it and we will never give it away. 
but we every month we send out a newsletter describing what's new on the site and that lets you know when we're organizing meetups. We have a weekly meetup. We host workshops. We host convenings. So sign up for the newsletter if you want to meet other people who are interested in this work. This has been fantastic. I'm so glad that you were able to take some time and talk with me and hopefully reach hundreds and hundreds of quote unquote older women out there who are tuning in and hearing about this podcast. And I, I can't thank you enough. It's, it's been great. You're very welcome, Jane. And take those quotes away. We are older women. Nothing wrong with that, baby. Yeah, you got it. We're damned a lot of fun. See you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Older Women and Friends. And speaking of friends, please tell yours. And if you're interested in reaching me with comments or suggestions, you can do that by emailing me at olderwomenandfriendspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can check out my blog at 70andme.com, and that's 70, the letter N, me, 70andme.com. Until next time.